Uh, I don't know uh, about any of you, but in the last few weeks, you know, our, our sun worship together just seems to have gone up a level. Yeah, it's been good, isn't it? Yeah, amen. Now, the more time we spend in God's presence, then the more that God will speak to us and the more we'll experience God. And it's the, it's the same with our Bibles. Yeah, so the more time we spend reading our Bible, not just remembering it, but wrestling with it, asking it questions, letting it ask questions of us, then the more of God's character is revealed to us. Yeah, this is why we do these teaching series. So, on that note, who um, who's read chapter fourteen this week? Oh wow, look at that! Ooh, that's pretty good, isn't it? You've been doing your homework, and uh, I'm sure you'll you'll agree it's some chapter, isn't it? It's like it's really all kicking off in chapter fourteen. It's fast moving. It's filled with action. It's got lots of characters, and it ends on a cliffhanger. Is it the beginning of the end, as this week's title says? A bit like the, the video that we watched right at the start of the meeting. Who's the last person standing at the end of chapter 14? And the more that I've reflected on it and prayed about this week, the more I think chapter 14 is speaking to where we are now. Yeah, we live in a fast-changing and challenging context that's bringing uncertainty to many of our lives. And if we're honest as a church community, we don't really know, do we, what part of the story we're in? Are we at the beginning of the end of something or are we at the end of the beginning of something? We don't really know. And this we share with uh, Jesus' first disciples, because at this point of the story, they don't know either. Things are hotting up. The life and ministry of Jesus is reaching its climax. And he finally goes public on being the Messiah. But because of that, things are getting much tougher. And things are about to change. And we don't know exactly how it will turn out. So how will these first disciples respond and what can we learn from their choices? Last time uh, out in Mark, Anthea uh, majored on key themes in chapters 12 and 13. This time I want us to focus on scenes and characters in chapter 14. And specifically to look at three characters and three scenes at the beginning and middle and at the end. And by the way, I've deliberately not done any slides this morning because I want us to focus on the characters and the scenes and for you to have them in your mind. So if you could turn to chapter 14 on your Bible device, however you do it, and have it ready, that would be good. And just to orientate us, there are, there are several things in chapter 14 uh, that we've seen elsewhere in Mark. Yeah, is there anything, any stuff this week if you've read chapter 14 that you sort of thought, that's familiar, I've, I've read that before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they're all swimming in key roles. Sorry? Didn't hear that. Oh, sorry, Nigel. He said there's women in key roles. Anything else? Any, any, just shout out a few things that you might have noticed that have cropped up in chapter 14 that you've read about so far. Anything else? Oh, there is. Yeah, oh, well, that's very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's going to be my second scene. Fantastic. Good spot, yeah. There are cloaks. There's about 12 references to cloaks, actually, in Mark. So, yeah. Anything else? Anyway, look. We have, so we have named disciples who keep messing things up and getting it wrong. Yeah? yeah? Uh, but we also have unnamed characters. And as Nigel said, in particular, we have an unnamed woman who totally gets who Jesus is. But we also have unnamed men. And in particular, we, as Tim says, we have one who appears wearing nothing but a linen garment in a story that's totally unique to Mark. But we've also got civic authorities and religious leaders who unite in their common opposition to Jesus. You know, Jesus is popular with the people, but he's turning upside down their notions of power, authority, and control. And uh, if Andy was here, this one would please Andy Reid. Um, there are patterns of three littered all through Mark, and there's lots of them in chapter 14. And later on, if you like, when you go home, you can go and spot just how many there are. You see, these people and motifs and patterns keep cropping up in Mark, but as we're getting to the climax of the story, it's like Mark's condensing them all into this one chapter because he wants to really reinforce what he's been saying about who Jesus really is. Because when the going gets tough and the way ahead is uncertain, it's even more important that we fix our attention on who Jesus really is. Okay, first scene, and I've asked the wonderful trees <laughs> to come and read uh, Mark 14, verses 3 to 9 for us. There we go. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wonderful. Thanks, Trees. So notice first where Mark places this defining scene. 
He puts it in between the narratives of the powerful men who are plotting to kill Jesus and Judas, who agrees to help them by using his power and position to betray him. It's, it's, uh, it's three scenes, and this is the one in the middle. And while all this is happening, this is just two days before one of Israel's most important religious celebrations, what is Jesus doing? So is he plotting divine intervention and retribution? Is he planning his big victory moment when he's revealed as the long-expected Messiah? Is he getting all the preparations ready for the celebration? Is he overseeing the practical logistics? Is he writing his Passover meal sermon? No, he's not. He's chilling. He's chilling first century CE Palestine style. Yeah? He's receiving hospitality at the house of Simon the leper. And note, uh, as Simon's at home, Simon must obviously be cured of his disease. So maybe this is a thank you to Jesus meal for healing him. We don't know. That's conjecture. But what we can say is that as events around Jesus are conspiring against him, he chooses relationship and hospitality over everything else. And into this room full of men dining comes an unnamed woman carrying an alabaster jar, unnamed probably as a sign of low social status. There's an expectation that she's only there to serve the men, and on that basis she has little or no voice. We know from the negative reaction of the men that she's carrying an extravagant amount of oil. And that as the jar's neck has to be broken, she's only going to use this once. The text also tells us that this woman has spent about a year's worth of money, almost certainly more than she could ever afford, to buy this jar of oil for just one use. And what does she do with this extravagant gift? Seemingly without a second thought, she wastes it, according to the men, in one go as she pours it on Jesus' head to anoint him. And who were anointed this way in the Bible? Priests and priests and kings, absolutely. And uh, for those of you who uh, watched the coronation of King Charles III, uh, you'll recall that his anointing happened behind these secret screens. Yeah. Um, you know, it was overseen by senior religious figures with the, with the rich and powerful there in the grandest of settings, but not so with Jesus. His anointing was undertaken by a nameless woman during the intimacy of a meal in the house of a friend. And back to Charles, we, we couldn't see how much oil was used, could we? Although I, I suspect it wasn't poured on Charles, yeah? You can just imagine Charles saying, oh, that wouldn't do, would it? It was probably just a dab or two. So why does this woman lavish so much oil on Jesus? Well, because while the men are being distracted by this unwelcome cultural contravention, this woman is solely focused on Jesus. She has really seen and she's really understood who Jesus is, and she goes for it. She pours out all that she has out of all that she has. 
But there's more because she has prophetic insight. She has the prophetic insight that this king will rule first by laying down his power and suffer and be killed. He's going to redefine what it means to rule and reign with power and success and status. And the beautiful thing is that this intimate prophetic response of this unnamed woman is the one that the Bible says Christians are told to remember for all time. It's not the actions of the named disciples. It's this unnamed woman and her intimate prophetic act. You see, with Jesus, it doesn't matter who we are or where we've come from or what we've done. We all have the same responsibility to respond as people who have seen and experienced who Jesus really is. So this morning, if you're feeling a bit invisible to God, maybe you're feeling a bit unheard and your prayers are going unanswered, or if you feel like you just don't have that much to offer, or if you just feel a bit on the outside for whatever reason, be encouraged by this woman's example. You know, like her, it's our heartfelt responses that are seen by God. And we fix our attention on Jesus. Okay, uh, second scene, I've asked the fantastic Simeon's going to read, aren't you? Yeah. And we're going to quickly look at um, Mark 43 to 52. And there might be a young naked man. Not me. <laughs> The Betrayal and Arrest of Jesus Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you not come with swords and clubs to arrest me, as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him. And he left the linen and ran off naked. Brilliant. Thanks, Simeon, for that. So you see, at the, the end of this scene, you get this young man who's watching events play out. In the, in the NRSV, it helpfully says it's a certain young man. So although he's unnamed, he's not out of place. Okay? He's intentionally in this story at this moment. Um, and there's this detail that he's wearing nothing but a linen cloth. What's that? all about. Well, although it's late in the day, one possibility is that he's about to be baptized into the group. And maybe at this point of the story, it's pretty risky to be joining Team Jesus. So an evening ceremony could possibly make an awful lot of sense. And so on what should be the defining moment for him, he's instead left watching as things fall apart. Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee. Yet the text is implying that this young man is still drawn to Jesus. He's wanting to stick around to see what happens. 
But when the mob catch up with him and get hold of him, he decides it's time to quit. He flees to save his life, discarding the only thing that is covering his dignity. Now we know from the Greek word that's used for that linen cloth that this is a fine piece of linen. And a garment like this was probably the most expensive item a person would own. So while the unnamed woman of the first scene wastes expensive oil and risks her dignity to give her all to Jesus, this unnamed man wastes his expensive cloak and exposes his dignity to save his own life. And this is, of course, in stark contrast to Jesus. Earlier in this chapter, we know that Jesus understands that he's going to be betrayed. And how does Jesus react to that? Does he confront Judas directly? Does he get the other disciples to gang up on Judas? Does he call divine intervention to come and stop what Judas is going to do? No, he doesn't, does he? He lets Judas act according to his free will. In fact, he even manages to out Judas to the other disciples at a Passover meal without shaming him. He never shames Judas. So when the expected betrayal actually happens, as we've just read, how does Jesus react? Does he react with force or violence? No, he diffuses the situation by surrendering his life. But Jesus' disciples, well, they've been around with him for nearly three years. They've seen his amazing miracles. They've heard his powerful teaching. Surely they're going to follow his example. But no, they flee. Despite what they've seen and heard, they flee. And so this young man, when faced with that similar decision, can't get beyond what he sees with his own eyes. He sees an arrested man whose disciples have scattered and he wants no part of it. He only sees what the world wants him to see, that power wins, whether it's civic or religious. So when we are faced with similar choices, what do we see? Or more to the point, who do we see? Do we only just see what the world around us wants us to see? Or do we keep our attention fixed on Jesus and see who Jesus really is? And let that help us make our choices. Okay, final scene. And I've asked marvelous Matt. There's Matt. There he is. Come and read our, our final scene, which is uh, verses 66 to 72. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below, and one of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it and said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. And just then, 
a rooster crowed. And when the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Thanks, Matt. You know, it's another one of those threes, isn't it? Um, this is one of the best-known disciples in one of the most well-known gospel scenes that leaves us with a question about Peter's brokenness. Although we know at this point Peter so, so well, surely he's feeling like a complete nobody and probably wishes he was like one of the unnamed characters that we've just been hearing about. Jesus has betrayed Jesus. His other disciples have run away. And now Peter, who at the high point declares Jesus is the Messiah, denies any association with him. In the parallel scene, while Jesus is being convicted, Peter is doing all he can to acquit himself. And this seems to sum up Mark's whole narrative arc about the weakness and frailty of Jesus' disciples. It marks the low point for a man who has talked a great game, but so far has consistently failed to deliver despite his best intentions. And just to anchor the whole miserable experience, the cock crows just as Jesus predicted. And I wonder how many times subsequently Peter heard that cock crow in his mind, distracting him, reminding him of how far he had fallen. The cock crowing. But rather than being the moment of ultimate failure, that sign of the cock crowing is actually the moment of release that points us to God's enduring faithfulness. And Mark is showing us with God that denial is not betrayal. Denial is not betrayal. That it's okay to admit we feel broken for all sorts of reasons and linking into what we've just been talking about with Kintsugi Hope, it's okay to feel broken. That there is life on the other side of letting God down if we are prepared to humble ourselves and acknowledge our brokenness. And maybe this is the real difference between Judas and Jesus and Peter. Peter ultimately recognizes his own weakness. But Judas can never humble himself and have his pride broken. In verse 62, when Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah, he still uses the relational term, son of man. But he also says that this son of man will rule at the right hand of God. That's in the place of submission. So Jesus is our example of relationship with God, but also our model of submission to God. And it's our loyalty and surrender to God that carries us through times of doubt, disillusionment, and disbelief, and even times when we stop believing. 
God values our faithfulness and our surrender more than anything else. Even when we wander away, God is always calling us back by name. And Mark confirms this in the text in an amazing way. The, the next and the only other time he refers to Peter is in chapter 16, verse 7. And Peter gets a special mention. It's the disciples and Peter. Or in some versions, it's the disciples including Peter. Mark is making it crystal clear that despite everything that Peter has done, that denial is not betrayal, but Peter is welcome and he's included in the family of God. And when we come in a relational spirit of honesty, humility and surrender, God is enduringly faithful, even despite our unfaithfulness. And that is such good news. Okay, just to pull it all together very, very quickly. You know, followers of Christ have always lived with uncertainty. We always will. Like the very first disciples, we just don't know where we are on God's redemptive timeline. We don't know if the beginning of something or the end of something or anywhere in between. In fact, we read last time in, in Mark 13 that no one knows the answer to that question, only God. And so it's not supposed to become a distraction for us. Instead, Mark in chapter 14 really shows us where our focus should be. And that's on how we respond to who we have really seen Jesus to be. Jesus, the only one who is still standing at the end of chapter 14. Mark is saying, fix your attention on Jesus. Keep your attention focused on who Jesus really is. Let's pray. Oh, is that we've got the band back. Let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and search us this morning about where our attention really is. Let's pray this morning for a fresh sight of who Jesus is and to help us respond to the situations that we find ourselves in. I believe this morning the Holy Spirit wants to call us again by name. And get our attention back and fixed on who Jesus 
really is. That's Mark's point. Let's focus now on Jesus. Jesus.